If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to IMRU Radio Magazine. The nation's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender radio show. Out front and out loud since 1974. I'm Chris Wilson. I'm Stephen Raines. And I'm Abby Dees. Tonight, we'll hear the second part of my four-part interview. Yes, I said that, four-part interview with former Representative Barney Frank. And I'll talk live in studio with transgender video blogger, actress, and singer, Isley Royst. And I'll chat with novelist and poet, Colin Kelly. But first, the national and international news from This Way Up. I'm Abby Dees. And I'm Michael LeBeau. With NewsWrap, a summary of some of the news in or affecting LGBT communities around the world for the week ending April 25, 2015. Kenya's high court has ordered the government to allow the official registration of LGBT organizations. The country's National Gay and Lesbian Human Rights Commission has been blocked five times since 2012 from registering as a non-governmental organization, NGO, leaving them without a number of legal protections. The country's non-governmental organization's coordination board consistently ruled that the name of the organization itself was unacceptable because the Kenyan Penal Code criminalizes gay and lesbian liaisons. But the high court said that popular morality and religion should not be a basis for limiting rights. The three-judge panel ruled that blocking LGBT groups from registering as NGOs violated the freedom of association provision of the country's constitution. Speaking with the UK's Pink News, Kenyan activist Eric Guattari called the judgment groundbreaking. This rejection of popular morality and religion limitations to rights, he said, will hopefully be a beacon of jurisprudence to the 38 other African nations that are still using moral arguments to limit the rights of minorities. But a new bill has been drafted in Uganda and backed by President Yoweri Museveni that would require NGOs to not engage in any activity which is contrary to the dignity of the people of Uganda. Because Ugandan culture is infamously homophobic, equality advocates fear that such a law could be used to crack down on LGBT rights groups. The proposed non-governmental organization, NGO bill, would give the new government agency the power to inspect and approve all community groups and NGOs and allow it to disband or reject the registration of a group where it is in the public interest to refuse to register the organization or for any other reason that the board may deem relevant. The leaders of an unregistered group could face up to eight years in prison. Nicholas Opayo of the Civil Liberties Group Chapter 4 Uganda said that if it passes, the bill will obstruct the ability of all Ugandans to work collectively through local and international organizations on any research or advocacy that may be deemed critical of the government. Vague and overly broad provisions, he warned, open the door to silencing peaceful government critics and activists of all sorts. Never say die homophobes in the U.S. Congress are still tilting at marriage equality windmills. Right-wing Republican Representative Steve King of Iowa has introduced the Restrain the Judges on Marriage Act of 2015 to stop the courts from destroying traditional marriage. His bill challenges Article 3 of the U.S. Constitution, which gives federal courts the jurisdiction to decide any question involving the interpretation of, or the validity under the Constitution of, any type of marriage. King actually has seven Republican co-sponsors, including the always-reliably anti-gay Louie Gohmert of Texas. Republican presidential hopeful and Texas Senator Ted Cruz 
has introduced two bills that try to blunt nationwide marriage equality. According to Bloomberg News, one would establish a constitutional amendment shielding states that define marriage as between one woman and one man from legal action, and the other would bar federal courts from further weighing in on the marriage issue until such an amendment is adopted. The move ironically comes on the heels of a private reception held for Cruz in New York at the home of a gay Republican businessman, which has already prompted event cancellations and calls for community boycotts of the local gay venues he owns, including night spots and hotels. Just when you thought you'd heard every wacky argument against marriage equality, a self-described Christian lawyer filed a doozy with the U.S. Supreme Court ahead of the April 28th oral arguments challenging the civil marriage bans in four states. Gene Scher, the attorney who unsuccessfully defended Utah's marriage ban, claims in his amicus brief, on behalf of a hundred scholars of marriage, that opening the institution to same-gender couples nationwide will devalue traditional marriage and cause fewer heterosexual couples to marry. This would, in turn, lead to a large number of abortions by unmarried women, who have them at higher rates than married women. Nearly 900,000 more children of the next generation would be aborted as a result of their mothers never marrying, he warns. Cher admitted to a Washington Post reporter, however, that he couldn't prove the causality. But he claimed that there are theoretical reasons why marriage equality and abortion are connected. The state of Arkansas gained notoriety along with Indiana when it passed and then amended a so-called religious freedom bill that, at least in its original form, critics called a license to discriminate against LGBT people. But Arkansas lawmakers made news even earlier this year when they passed and Republican Governor Asa Hutchinson signed a bill to prohibit cities and counties from enacting or enforcing anti-discrimination protections for LGBT people because they aren't protected by state law. Officials in a few cities, including the state's largest, Little Rock, are thinking about defying that measure by requiring all city contractors to have anti-bias protections for LGBT people. At least two other central Arkansas cities, Conway and North Little Rock, have approved more scaled-back ordinances expanding workplace discrimination protections to LGBT city employees. Voters repealed an LGBT anti-bias ordinance in Fayetteville in February, and a May referendum is scheduled on a similar measure passed by the Eureka Springs City Council. In an odd twist, Governor Hutchinson said at the end of this week that he's seriously considering the possibility that state-level protections for LGBT people already exist. Public radio station KUAR reported that Little Rock City attorney Tom Carpenter argued earlier in the week that existing language in the state's anti-bullying law protects LGBT individuals from discrimination. With a national uproar over the efforts in Indiana and Arkansas still reverberating, the leader of the North Carolina House says that his chamber won't debate a proposed religious freedom bill this year. Democratic lawmakers and big companies with a North Carolina presence have opposed the idea. Republican Governor Pat McCrory has also questioned the need for it. That's News Wrap for the week ending April 25, 2015. Produced by Steve Pride, written by Greg Gordon, and recorded at the studios of KPFK Los Angeles. Follow the news in your area and around the world. An informed community is a strong community. News Wrap from This Way Out is brought to you by you. Help keep us on the air and in your ears at thiswayout.org, where you can also read the text of this newscast. For This Way Out, I'm Abby Dees. And I'm Michael LeBeau. You can hear all 30 minutes of the latest This Way Out, including more news wrap, on Stitcher Radio On Demand, on iTunes, or at thiswayout.org. Also on the program this week, pro-equality humor heralds historic U.S. Supreme Court hearings. And veteran gay activist David Mixner recalls the don't ask double cross. And we are here in the studios with Atlanta author and poet Colin Kelly. Welcome, Colin. I'm thrilled to be here. (laughs) Well, if you could tell us a little bit about uh, why you're in Los Angeles and what you've been up to. Well, I'm here because of you, actually, Stephen, (laughs) because uh, for everyone who doesn't know, Stephen Raines was named the... uh, inaugural uh, city poet for West Hollywood. And so his first act as the city 
Poet Laureate, was the Lamppost Poet Project, where he picked more than 20 poets from around the country. And there are banners hanging along Santa Monica Boulevard uh, with the the poets, and I happened to be one of them. So he put together a reading uh, that was uh, held this past Saturday at the West Hollywood Library, uh, and I flew out from Atlanta to be part of it. And it's uh, what a thrill. What an exciting thing to have poetry hanging along Santa Monica Boulevard. I mean, it's huge. Yeah, in terms of like public consumption, as far as like people commuting in their cars and walking and they can see your face right outside of the Ramada Inn at West Hollywood, <laughs> how, right? How appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> so if you could talk, uh, it's National Poetry Month, so if you could talk a little bit, uh, start by talking about your poetry and, you know, what... L.A. has featured quite a bit in your poetry, even though you are a Southern poet. Um, but what other kind of themes do you go back to in your poetry? Well, pop culture is is my big thing. I, you know, I'm a kid of the 70s and the 80s, and so I always find myself kind of going back and grounding my work in pop culture imagery like Star Wars and the Bionic Woman and Pam Greer and the Black Exploitation films and and, and that kind you of thing. Just dated yourself completely. I you recognize hey, this. That's fine. You know, that's that's <laughs> kind of my that's kind of my thing. You know, I just find it really fascinating that I got to grow up in that time, and so that's where the work kind of always kind of comes back to. And also, growing up gay in the South at a time when growing up gay in the South could get you killed. And no one was out of the closet. <laughs> uh, so it was it was interesting. Um, and so, you know, the work kind of that's the conflation, the pop culture that was happening while I was kind of discovering my and navigating my sexuality in the 70s and 80s in rural Georgia. Yeah. And poetry does rely on time and place. Those are heavy elements in poetry. Sure. And your work has that, but it also has this incredible universal quality to it because you do pull those pop culture references that even though someone may not be of the same generation, there are these iconic figures that you're writing poems about, whether it's Wonder Woman or Farrah Fawcett or... Or my girl, Jamie Summers. Oh, Jamie mention. Summers. Yeah, oh, I Lindsay Wagner. I love her. I got to meet her uh, a couple years ago. I'm going to start writing poetry. She is still just as stunning and so nice. And I was just like, um, just, you know, I could barely speak. I was like, oh my God, it's Jamie Summers. You know, so I'm a total fangirl over that kind of, I mean, I just totally just lose my mind. So yeah, well, don't take me anywhere. Okay. In terms of you being a fangirl, I would love to hear your Farrah Fawcett poem. Sure. Or your poem that's sure. dedicated to Farrah. Yeah, I'd love to. Yeah, it's called Girl Crush. And it's in my collection render that came out Last year. No, the year before. What year is it? Uh, 2015. 2015. So it came out in 2013 from Sibling Rivalry Press. And it's about to be reprinted in this great anthology coming out called Rabbit Ears, which is all of these poems about pop culture and TV. Great. Yeah. So they picked this one up for that. So this is called Girl Crush for Farah. I grew my hair and feathered it for you. We were the same shade of blonde. I had the red bathing suit poster on my bedroom wall, your smile a nightlight, signal to noise. Now I can see that your teeth were clenched, head thrown back, not so much playful as predatory, eyes telegraphing that the tingling I felt down below was fleeting. There would be no compromise after this image. You refuse to take Charlie's calls or jiggle and giggle your way to stereotype. That smile said, set me on fire. Expectations defied burn faster, consume in a crackling wave. Love remains, but is transferred. The curve of your breast said, I am not a mirror. Look elsewhere. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> Uh, the visual on that one, wow! Oh, so yeah, I had that. You know, I had that red bathing suit poster, you know, on my on my wall. You know, it was an icon. You know, I think we all remember it. Well, yeah, yeah most well, of us. <laughs> we're all. I dating. dated myself too. We're yeah. all dating ourselves here. Well, yeah. and that's when I was talking about the year. The universality of your work that even though you're referencing this poster of Farah, this image of her that's really kind of designed for the male gaze, 
it really had young gay boys' attention as well as a lot of women. You know, it's so yeah emblazoned on her, you know. Because I just thought she was, I mean, you know, I was a huge Charlie's Angels fan, and I just thought she was amazing, you know. I mean. She was perfection at that time. She was, and she just kicked butt. It was great. So what's not to love? You know, it's someone to look up to. Because the male role models that were on TV, I mean, I love Steve Austin. I mean, the $6 million man, you had to love him. He's kind of a Ken doll, though. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. You know, he, I mean, because, you know, because so, the bionic woman was so much more interesting and entertaining, and there was so much more depth to Jamie Summers and the bionic woman than there was to the $6 million man. You know, so you, I just got immediately drawn to that. I was drawn to the emotional and the depth and the, you know, and it was the women who were bringing this, you know, to television then. So, yeah. So when you were going through being a gay kid in the South during a time, well, still, I know it's very hard in a lot of places sure. in the South. Was poetry your way to survive or did that come later? It came when I was in high school. I mean, I discovered poetry, I guess, when I was in junior high and I had a really great teacher who kind of, you know, was giving, were giving me all of these books and everything. But it was high school where I really started to discover the poets who would influence me, like Anne Sexton and um, Stan Rice and Alice Walker and Margaret Atwood. Those are the poets that I started discovering at the St. Vincent Millay, Walt Whitman. It was, you know, those teenage years where I really kind of immersed myself and then started writing poetry. Um, and then I started, you know, getting some things published in the early 90s. So it's been a slow build because I'm kind of a perfectionist, and I keep redrafting the poems over and over and over and over. And There's two or three in this book I'd still love to redraft. And yet, even uh, with your perfectionistic qualities, you have four collections out, yeah, right? Yes. Four collections of poetry. That's yes. a lot. Um, and before we talk about your novels, I would love for you to read your Pam Greer poem. Since we're talking about strong women mm-hmm. and kicking ass, I feel like... Now... I've met Pam Greer a couple times now. We're friends on Twitter. Hi, Pam, if you're listening. <laughs> and so the first time I met Pam Greer, this poem had been published in an anthology in Canada. Uh, and so I had a copy, and I brought it to her. And she was doing this big event for The L Word when it was on. And there were all these people there waiting to meet her. And I said, you know, Ms. Greer, you know, I'm a huge fan. I've even, you know, I brought you a copy of this book. I said, because there's a poem that I've written about you because you've been such a big influence on my life. And she said, oh, oh, what page is it on? Because I'm going to read it right now. (laughs) And so I had to stand there while Pam Greer read this poem. And I was just sitting there going, oh, oh, this was a really bad idea. But she really loved it. And she, like, grabbed me up and hugged me. And so, yeah, she was, it was just spectacular. Let's hear it. Okay. Why I want to be Pam Greer. I want to pull a gun out of my hair and blow your head off. I want to wear black leather knee-high boots and plant my 10-inch heel up your sorry ass. I want to flim you and flam you and just say, God damn you, while I slit your throat with my knife. I want to be exploited, overworked, and underpaid, but look damn good doing it because I'm always getting laid. I want to be an idol, a nobody, a whatever happened to her, then put on my Kangol hat, my tight black suit, look better than I did 20 years ago, and smoke you one more time, good and proper. I want to cross 110th Street with a bag full of cash and one last sweet kiss from the man who actually gave a damn. I want to drive away into the morning light, headed for Spain, hurting like hell, but with my head up and the taste of him on my lips. Mm. Wow. Who doesn't? Yeah. (laughs) I mean, you just bring to life the image of everything she did, though, with that. You really do. Yeah, from... From Foxy Brown to Jackie Brown, you know, so, yeah. You mentioned that all these people in- influenced you, Walt Whitman, and uh, it's a way. Yeah. And um, are you aware of your poetry influencing other people? Yeah, I mean, slowly, yes. I mean, when you're, you know, poetry has changed so much. You know, a lot of people are writing poetry, but poetry is kind of like the little niche Sub-genre. It's not really a money, a, a no, money objective. No. Thing. So you didn't yeah. go into poetry for the for the money. money. No, I went, in, went into it for the love, and um, but yeah, I mean, I you know, I have a pretty big following on social media, and I get feedback and people who've read the work, and you know, and it's it's really gratifying, you know, that people 
are moved by it and are inspired by it, and especially the pop culture stuff. You know, when they read that, there's a connection there. You know, so it's an easy way to kind of, you know, sometimes poetry can be really difficult. I mean, people don't get it. I'm making the air quotes. Uh, you know, but I'm, I try to write in a way that's accessible so that it's a personal experience, but it's also a universal experience. So you can take away what you need from the poetry. Yeah, and by using these pop cultural references, you're kind of tapping into this cultural memory that people have. And you're doing it without uh, being overly camp. There's a sense of playfulness, but you're really using them to drive an emotional message to kind of get a message across. Uh, You've also uh, published, I mean, as if four collections of poetry wasn't enough, you also have a trilogy of novels. You have a third one coming out yes. soon. You have two novels and a collection of short stories. Can you talk a little bit about the... Sure. Well, the novels, it's a trilogy called The Venus Trilogy, and the first two books are Conquering Venus and Remain in Light, and they are out now from Sibling Rivalry Press. And the third book is coming out in March of next year. It's called Leaving Paris. All the books are set in Paris, and it's about a young southern gay man who is not me, uh, who might be loosely based on me, just a little. But uh, he goes to Paris, and he meets a Parisian widow, and he becomes involved in this murder mystery in Paris about things that happened in 1968 during the riots, the student riots. So the whole trilogy follows their search for the people who killed her husband. And so it's this really interesting mix of this southern gay boy in Paris with this hip, chic Parisian widow, and they've like become these detectives. And it's just been a hell of a lot of fun to write these books. It really has. And they're so captivating to read. I mean, it's I mean, definite page turners. And similar to your poetry, they have a lot of emotional weight to them. There's a lot there. Yeah. So thank you. Where can people look you up and find out uh, more about Colin you? ColinKelly.com. C-O-L-L-I-N-K-E-L-L-E-Y.com. Yeah. Yes. All right. Thank you so much for <laughs> being with us. Thanks for having me. This is great. It's a lot of fun. We'll be back with Isley Royst from the band Spectacular Spectacular right after this Rainbow Minute. J.C. Leyendecker and his famous paintbrush coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Joseph Christian Leyendecker's artistic career spanned more than 50 years. He is best known for his Saturday Evening Post and Collier's weekly magazine covers, as well as arrow collar and shirt advertisements. Born in 1874 in Germany, he immigrated to America while a child. At 15, he apprenticed himself to a Chicago engraving company and took lessons at the Chicago Art Institute. In 1905, his ad concept of the Arrow Collar Man turned Arrow into the largest shirt brand in America. Women swooned over Landecker's ads of handsome young men. In fact, it was his lover of 49 years, Charles Beach, who was the model of the Arrow Collar Man, the symbol of American sophistication, masculinity, and style. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Alyssa Solomon. And we are back in studio and I have a very special guest with us. Uh, Isley Royst has joined me here and we've got uh, just a few minutes to talk to her about so many things before we even talk to her about her band. So welcome, Isley. Thank you for having me. You know, I've looked you up on YouTube and preparing for this interview. You've got to be the busiest person with all of the things you do besides music. Um, I try to stay busy, but you'd be surprised. Sometimes I have some downtime. (laughs) Well, I know that you go to YouTube, and one of the things that's so impressive to me is you are so matter-of-fact and out about being transgender, and it seems to be your mission in life to let people know how you feel, what you think, and quite frankly, that you're not all that scary or different from anyone else. Yeah, it's actually kind of new for me being more open and out about it, and probably like in the last year and a half. And before that, I wasn't. I kept myself, and I played in bands prior to that, and then I stopped everything that I was doing, just went to school and tried to like, transition like low-key without anyone knowing yeah right (laughs) and then um then I started doing like YouTube videos to give back to people who helped inspire me and so I wanted to give back to the community and then it just went from there 
And and there you are. Yeah. And there you are all over the internet. And recently, there's a Huffington Post article about you. Oh, yeah. You were featured as, what? how was it framed? The 10 transgender people in entertainment to look out for or something like that? Yeah, for 2015. How did that come about? Um, They asked me if I wanted to do it. And I was honored that they would even have me on that list because there's so many amazing individuals out there that should be on there. So for me to be on there was really good on her. Yeah. yeah. And a lot of pressure for 2015, that's, that's right? Like you're yeah. like you're like under yeah. the gun. You got to look out. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah, really. <laughs> you know, also so now I have to like you know, really do something. Yeah. <laughs> well, there there's also the YouTube and, and I found this to be something. It's like I don't know if I could do it. Yeah. To be such a private person and you've actually chronicled the transition in pictures. Uh-huh. And and it's like that's so personal. And I know it's got to send a wonderful message to a lot of people, but was that tough? Because it sure looked tough to me to do something oh, like yeah. that. Oh, yeah. The first time I did it, it was extremely tough. I was, and I sat there for a long time thinking, should I post this first video or should I not? And I kept going back and forth. And then I posted it. Then I deleted it. And then I put it back up. And then from there, I was living in San Francisco. And then where I was working, someone recognized me and they wrote me. And then I was like, oh, no, people are going to find me now. Because <laughs> I was like my YouTube stuff, I had it under a different alias because I wanted to keep that from my private life. Sure. And then um, when someone recognized me, then I was like, oh, and so I uh, deleted all the videos so no one could find me. Then a few months later, I decided, you know, I don't care what people think or, you know, I'm just going to be more open about it. And that's when I started becoming more open about it. And then last year, a year ago, Laura Jane Grace of Against Me asked me to be on a AOL series documentary with her. And so I did that. And so from there, things have been like going up. Yeah, you've been on Glee as well. Yeah. How did that come about? They were just looking for a transgender choir. And I thought it'd be a fun opportunity to meet other transgender people like myself. And because I've never been in a room with so many. Trans- yeah, it was a big choir. How yeah. many people were there? 200. Wow. Yeah. So it was so amazing. I met so many awesome people and made so many friends from that. Wow. That's fabulous. Yeah. So you do have a band. Yes, I do. And we're going to be taking a break in a few minutes. We're going to come back and talk about the band. But the one thing I wanted to ask you very quickly is what has the reaction been to some of that stuff you've posted on YouTube? Probably 95% of it has been really positive. And I've gotten a lot of feedback and a lot of opportunities have come my way because of that. That's fabulous. Well, we are going to take a quick break, but we will be back with more from Isley Royce in just a minute. We'll hear that music, too. And later in the show, you'll hear more from my chat with Barney Frank. Hi, I'm Chaz Bono, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine, out loud and proud since 1974. On KPFK-FM 90.7 Los Angeles, 98.7 Santa Barbara, 93.7 San Diego, 99.5 Ridgecrest China Lake, and streaming online at kpfk.org. Welcome back. You are listening to IMRU Radio. I'm Abby Dees. I'm Stephen Rains. And I'm Chris Wilson. And that song coming out of the break was called Orange Juice, and it was performed by Isley Royce Band, Spectacular Spectacular. Isley is still in studio with us, but now she's joined by one of her bandmates, Millie Chan. 
So uh, welcome to you too, Millie, as well. Okay, I got to ask one of you, and I don't care who wants to speak up. Come on, what's that band name about? That was spectacular, spectacular. Is that the point? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It actually comes from the movie Moulin Rouge. Oh. Yeah, the name. Oh, my goodness. I have to watch that movie again. I don't remember that. Very clever, though. And I did enjoy the movie, so it's great inspiration. So tell me a little bit about the band specifically. I mean, how many band members and who who was that we heard singing and what do you play and all that band stuff. Tell us about it. Okay, so we started the band in 2012. I moved to San Francisco to start it with uh, Jessica DeGrasse, who I played in bands with prior for the last 10 years or so. And we wrote and recorded everything over the span of the last three years. And we're getting ready for the release on June 30th. And then a couple days later, we go on a U.S. and Canada tour. Wow. And who did we hear singing on that? Okay, so Jessica's singing on there. Okay. And Millie Chan, who just joined us, she plays bass. Mm-hmm. And I play guitar and do, like, songwriting for it. Now, the style that we heard on that recording, is that pretty similar to what we're going to be seeing on the CD? Actually, since we wrote the album over a span of three years, it's very diverse. We have anything from quartets and orchestral arrangements to synthesizers to rock. Yeah, it's just a huge diverse. And we wrote it. We took uh, road trips through the whole like course of writing it. So we wrote part of the album you know, in Oregon or in Northern California or Los Angeles. Wow. Yeah. Yes. And, and you spend part of your time in San Francisco, and you do a lot of performing up there as well, correct? Yeah. Um, we're actually playing July 24th at Hotel Utah in San Francisco. That's our next show, and that's when the tour comes through. And, when you, and you'll be in L.A. at some point, July 25th. Oh, okay. Yeah, so that's, that's fabulous. Yeah, and... Uh, That'll be the last day of that tour. Now, let's have a word or two from Millie. Millie, are you the newest member of Spectacular Spectacular? Yes, I am. And how long have you been with the band? I've been with them for now three years. And you were doing music before? And how did you meet uh, the other two? It's a funny story. I actually met Isley and Jessica in cosmetics when we were working in um, Bloomingdale's San Francisco. Isn't that where all musicians meet? Yeah. And I, it was funny because when I joined Fragrances where Isley was, I had this connection with her and I just kept talking to her and she didn't even know me. And she kind of had like this awkward smile, like, why is this girl keep latching onto me and talking to me? And ever since that day, we went to lunch every day and she was like, hey, I'm starting a band. And I was like, oh, I play bass. And we became best friends and started playing music. Fabulous. Yeah. So back to you, Isley. Are you based here in L.A. or are you uh, based somewhere else, San Francisco? Or? Yeah, we actually moved here in December of this last year, so a few months ago. I see. Yeah. The entire band. Um, Jessica's on her way down, so she'll be here in June. <laughs> now, in, in terms of your personal life, how does it show up in your songs and in your music, if you're one of the main writers of the song, like um, Monsters Inside of You? Um, that... So that song, it was a, a collaborative. All of us wrote that together. And it's about a town that we grew up in. Well, we grew up by uh, called Redlands, California, and they have orange groves there. And so that's why it's orange juice. Yeah. And so like Show Me the Monsters Inside of You is uh, like a reference. You know, I want to see that other side of you that you're not letting us see, that you're hiding. So. And why the title Orange is just because of the orange groves? Yeah. Because there's uh, references to the orange groves there. Okay. Yeah. Interesting, because, I, yeah, I know that's in there somewhere, but but um, it's a very powerful, powerful song, oh, I you. think. Um, what are some of the other things we can look forward to on the CD that, since it's not out yet, uh, we're privileged to only have that one song <laughs> I to know. listen to? By the time I came here, we were supposed to have the album done <laughs> And it's been taking forever. That perfectionism thing again. That seems to be the theme this evening. And, you know, I've never heard of that before with musicians, you know. Perfectionism? Well, perfectionism (laughs) and taking longer to get an album out than what you thought it would take. You know, it's sort of like when you call a contract for your kitchen. It's the same thing. Honestly, it was supposed to be out a year and a half ago. Of course it was. (laughs) So we're just happy it's finally almost over with. Um, We just have to do some mixing on a couple songs and that's it. But the That's last, what they all say. Yeah. True. That's what we've been saying for a year. But um, yeah, uh, the last thing we recorded was the orchestral arrangements for three songs. And our good friend, Dan and Rampton, he plays violin. Well, and Ooh. he's going to be touring with us. And he has yet to, you know, been introduced really. So I'm just seeing him for the first time now. But uh, he did a lot of the string arrangements and he's really talented and 
we're so happy to have him with us. How did you get into this? From what I could tell, just from the transition pictures, you have been a musician for a long time. Oh, yes, since um, probably eight years old. Wow. I started piano eight, uh, classical guitar at 13, and then so. And that's it. Any yeah. formal training at all? Uh, I took lessons. That's it? Yeah. You're not like, you know, go to Juilliard? No. I no. Mean, Cause I took lessons in junior high and high school for guitar, and then after that, I just self-trained myself. You know, because orchestral arrangements are pretty complex. Oh, um, those aren't my specialties. Oh. Those are uh, Dan and Rampton's. Oh, I see. Yeah, he's with us now. Yeah, we don't have a lot of time left, and I know you're starting this tour, but where can people go to follow along, to get on your mailing list, and find out where they might be um, able to they see can, you? They can check our Facebook, Spectacular Spectacular, or our SoundCloud and uh, there's a site called Bands in Town, and if they just look spectacular, spectacular there, they can see the nearest city that we'll be in. So ordinary websites are now passe. Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> well, there's a long story behind the, the website <laughs> of ours. Spectacular, spectacular was already taken. Yeah, and it's going to cost very yeah a lot of money to get got it. Got it. Got it. There's probably not another Isley Royce, though. No, there's not. Okay. Well, I want to thank you both, Isley and Melly, for being here with us. We'll look forward to hearing more about you, and oh, please keep in touch. Again, that's Isley, I-S-L-E-Y, Royst, which is spelled R-E-U-S-T. If you want to Google and if you want to look up the band, it's Spectacular Spectacular on Facebook. Thank you both so much. Thank you for having us thank so you. much. Thank I you. want to hear more of that music. But now... There's not much to say, except this is part two of my interview with Representative Barney Frank. The guy had a lot to say, and here's some of that interview. This is Abby Dees, and I'm continuing my conversation with one of the most influential personalities in American politics, former congressman from Massachusetts, Barney Frank. You mentioned as an example of kind of this lack of judgment in the things that happen in the LGBT movement, Gavin Newsom's 2004 decision to start issuing marriage licenses in San Francisco. And your criticism tracks a lot of people's criticism is that it was premature. It created a lot of instant fear and response in the right and galvanized the right in many ways. But I noticed something else that happened with Gavin Newsom, and that was... As soon as he did that, our national conversation about civil unions and same-sex marriage suddenly lurched to the left a little bit in that no, you're, sh- you're shaking your head at me. But- no, I'm saying you guys have a disease of California-itis. <laughs> what started that debate was real marriage in 2003 in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. I know there's this new book out about how it started in California. No, there were several states that already had marriage before Prop 8. The fact is that what started the conversation was real marriage. That's why I was upset with what Gavin Newsom did. Here is the situation. With same-sex marriage, it's kind of like marijuana. It's like a lot of other things. You have a situation where some people want to stop other people from doing something, even though it's really none of their business. In other words, if I want to marry Jim, well, what difference does it make to anybody else? If somebody wants to smoke marijuana, whose business is it? People want to stop it, but they don't want to say, oh... We don't want you to do it. We don't like it. They have to come up with reasons why it would be bad for society. So we had this situation where a lot of people in the country believed that if we were allowed to marry partners of our own sex, it would destabilize the country. Now, I knew that wasn't true, but it was frustratingly hard to prove it in the absence of evidence. So that's why the Massachusetts marriage decision, which came in 2003, was so important because it gave us a chance to say, okay, that's what I said to people. Look, we now have marriage. A year from now, we're going to be able to say to people, you know all that crap about how this is going to hurt other marriages? Where is it? It hasn't happened. And I didn't want to fight the battle at that point until we had some evidence. Immediately, by the way, of course, Republican politicians decided they were going to stop it. Mitt Romney was then governor of Massachusetts. He decided he would become president by being the man who choked out same-sex marriage in the cradle. So he's fighting in Massachusetts to undo it. George Bush then sends up a constitutional amendment to stop same-sex marriage in Massachusetts and everywhere else. I'm lobbying my colleagues, and this is where the Gavin Newsom issue came in. And what I was able to say to them is, hey, look, one of them would say to me, well, I kind of vote for that. People in my state don't want same-sex marriage. I would say, fine, you don't have it. Let me have it in Massachusetts. You go back and tell them you don't want it in Illinois. You don't want it in Minnesota. Let me have it in Massachusetts. Now, I predicted after a while we'll be able to change that. What Gavin Newsom did was to give the right wing the argument that marriage was coming everywhere. And I was afraid that was going to garner votes for a constitutional amendment. Our best strategy was to win this in Massachusetts, 
go from there. It's almost like a beachhead in military terms, and then show that there was no greater problem. Fortunately, not surprisingly, the California Supreme Court said, no, no, that doesn't they work. They have no choice. And that's the way it has worked out. Mm-hmm. Marriage spread. But again, the notion of uh, same-sex marriage, it started when we got it in Massachusetts and built from there. Well, we might have California-itis, but we certainly were watching Massachusetts kind of jealous, I would say, here in California that you guys had done that. But it did seem to me, and it might have been a combination of those things, that was a very brazen thing for Newsom to do. No, it wasn't. It was a politically successful. Wait, excuse me. It does not take any (laughs) political courage to be extremely pro-gay in, in San, San Francisco. Francisco. I mean, it's like, the other thing I would say is this. I objected because I have met people who thought they were being married under Gavin Newsom's rule and were bitterly disappointed. I think he played with people's emotions. I think he wasn't being that's, honest with people. That's probably true. Gavin Newsom knew those marriages would not hold up. And I think to do that as a ploy was wrong for people. But the other thing was we were having the debate. Yes, if the mayor of San Francisco had said, you know what? I'm jealous of Massachusetts. Let's go crusade now to have this here. That would have been very helpful. But not saying, okay, now we're going to have marriage everywhere. Because, Well, by the way— It would have been gutsier to do it in Tennessee. You know who who was very happy to uh, have Gavin Newsom do that? Carl Rove. (laughs) Literally, there's a very good book by a Harvard professor named Richard Carman about the marriage issue. And he talks about the extent to which Rove welcomed Newsom's move because that allowed him to say— this is a national issue now, and put referenda on the ballot in all these other states to stop same-sex marriage. All that is true. But then outside of this, you have the cultural conversation. And the thing that I did notice with this, and maybe we can also talk about some other things like the Indiana RIFRA that just came up, is that for whatever reason, and however misguided or well-guided that was, it seemed like our conversation was no longer about Civil unions. Well, me. it was about marriage. But that happened in Massachusetts months before Gavin Newsom did this. I seriously yeah. mean, sometimes okay. I think you people think the world only happens in California. Not to, Iowa moved on. No, I'll give the, you that. I'll give no, you that. But the conversation, it was Margaret Marshall, the chief justice of the Massachusetts mm-hmm. Supreme Judicial Court, now retired, who's a wonderful woman. In fact, I had a great, a couple years later, uh, just a couple years ago, she had retired from the Supreme Court. And I called her and she wrote the opinion and I left her a message. Uh, Margie, will you marry me? And because uh, I want her to perform the ceremony, she's out of town. But no, the conversation was going on. We were in the midst of this fight in Massachusetts, and other states were trying it. So what moved beyond civil unions was Massachusetts, and then a couple of other states were also working on it. I, I mean, no, the conversation had already shifted, and the fight was over Massachusetts. In fact, George Bush sent up a constitutional amendment. Mitt Romney was campaigning to snuff it out in Massachusetts. Regardless of where it starts, doesn't it take at some point that sort of critical mass of people actually protesting and going in the streets? And I'm thinking now of the Indiana RIFRA, the Religious Freedom Reform Act in Indiana. There have been all sorts of RIFRAs. That wasn't wasn't beaten in the street. That was beaten in 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 the the boardroom. No, look, I understand that. And sometimes you want to have protests, but the most effective protests are people registering to vote and calling their uh, legislators. Look, I wish the National Rifle Association was not so powerful. Have you ever seen an NRA demonstration? Not once. They they are very disciplined in voting, or I'll contrast Occupy and the Tea Party. I didn't agree with everything Occupy did. I was much more in sympathy with them than the Tea Party. But here's what happened. The Tea Party got registered and voted and took over the Republican Party, and Occupy had drum circles. And in America, registering to vote beats drum circles. <laughs> as far as RIFRA is concerned, I agree that it was important for people to make the objections to RIFRA. But we're turning the time. This is why I'm ultimately optimistic. Look, we've had a long fight to get people to be with us on moral grounds. This is unfair. You're torturing teenagers. You're denying people health benefits. People, we, we have great moral arguments. And we were making progress. But then the business community stepped in. And what happened in Indiana and Arkansas was these people said, you know what? You bigots are getting in the way of our making money. And in America, having the people tell them that they're not making enough money, boy, that's a great advance. And that's why I now think that we are on the way to complete victory. Because finally, the business community, and I've been disappointed in them. They've been sort of supportive of these right-wing extremists because they're mad at us over taxes and over financial regulation. But at this point, the business community is basically saying, all right, enough with the bigotry. You've gotten in the way of the economy, and I think that's going to put an end to it. This is Abby Dees, and I'm talking with former Congressman Barney Frank. The talk on the left is that 
the way to get to the right, the way the right has succeeded is by the God's guns and gays argument that so on the left, we think that that's how the right's being very successful is that somehow or another they're whipping up fear about the God's guns and gays. And you challenge that completely and say that it kind of comes back to that old thing. It's the economy, stupid. I think that's very important. I will. Guns is a problem and I wish it wasn't. But God and gays, no, as a matter of fact, I think I can prove that very straightforwardly. We all are very happy that we are making great progress on LGBT issues. The American people are becoming more and more supportive of LGBT issues, even while the alienation from liberalism and government is also going up. If one was causing the other, it couldn't happen. And similarly with God, look at what happened with the, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. That was an effort to use God against us, and that failed. I believe, and guns is part of it, but the fundamental issue is, I think it's very clear, the economy is getting better. America is doing better than any other developed nation, but those benefits are not being shared very well. And you have working white men, and I say working white men because in the 70s, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, if you were a white guy and you were willing to work, you made a good living, you went to the construction trade, you went to a factory. I say white guys because women and African Americans were being discriminated against then. They didn't have the same opportunity. Today, the working white guys find that, no, it's not the way it used to be. If you don't have some uh, high technical skill, if you don't have an advanced degree, your position is eroding. And I think that's their major objection, that they see prosperity and they're being left out. So I, I think the important thing to do, both because it's right in itself to diminish excessive inequality, and because it will help end this alienation, is for liberals to get behind ways to uh, decrease inequality. That's why I said if we were to stop prosecuting drugs and reduce military spending to a reasonable level, far less than it now is, we would free up $125, $150 billion a year so we could have every student get a good college education for 1000 bucks. We could reduce Medicare to 55 and take the heat off people. We could do all the infrastructure stuff we need. We wouldn't have to choose between a train or a desalination or, a, or whatever we wanted to do. And so that's the message of the book. The real problem we have as liberals with white working-class people is that they are angry that nobody's helping their economic situation, and that's what we ought to focus on. How do we do that without undoing some of the gains we've made in equality and social equality for minorities? Oh, I don't think you have to worry about them at all. I don't think white people are now angry at us because we're too pro-gay. To some extent, there's this concern, well, you guys are helping the blacks and not us. It's not true economically, but here's the deal. If we were to find ways to put all the white guys to work, then that concern would disappear. We have, look, the construction industry has historically been largely white men, although for technological reasons and legal reasons, if we expanded, it, there'd be a much more integrated force. This country could afford to put every construction worker to work in a week doing useful things, improving our infrastructure, building treatment plants, cleaning up environmental sites, building important facilities, doing public transportation, repairing roads and bridges. If we were to put all the white guys to work, I guarantee you there would be no concern about other people. Similarly, when the president did his health care plan, there was, oh, well, you're going to give those people health care. What about mine? If we had been able to say, well, here's part of the health care plan. Medicare is going to start at 55, not 65. Working people will tell you, once you know Medicare is coming, that's a great saving. That's a great relief. If we were not doing stupid things like the war in Iraq and wasting money elsewhere around the world on projects that are unwise— or subsidizing the defense of Western Europe against what I don't know, we would then be able to reduce Medicare age to 55 or say that any student who graduates anywhere in America who's done well and is interested in higher education can get a first-class higher education for uh, 1000 bucks a year. Well, that's certainly within our capacity financially if we didn't waste the money elsewhere. It all sounds great to me. It also sounds very big government. And Absolutely. that is something else you talk about right from the get-go in the book is when did we suddenly decide that government was bad? Well, I'll tell you, I, I talk about this. In 1961, John Kennedy says, ask what you can do for your country, which is a pro-government thing. And then, and, and I don't think it's an accident, the economy starts to shift in the 70s. In the immediate post-World War II period, America dominates the world because everybody else got destroyed. And it starts to shift, and Reagan is the one who says government's the enemy. And then Bill Clinton, whom I generally admire, 
says, oh, the era of big government is over. Like, that's a good thing. <laughs> People say to me, don't you think uh, we should have small government? I like to say, well, okay, how many fewer firefighters would you like to have? Which parks should we close? How fewer times a week do you want the garbage collected? Because that's all government. If you shrink government, that's what you're shrinking. I think it is true people have this negative view of government. Well, it's a paradox. People don't like government in general. They do like everything government does. And I think if we could expand those things, which are, as you accurately said, big government, we could say, by the way, you know that Medicare extension you got? That's bigger government. Do you think there is the will to change that cultural conversation at this point? I, that's a very good question. I think that the reality has to precede the cultural change. But here I do think there is. I think, and, and I think Barack Obama is missing the boat by giving in a little bit to going back into Iraq and back into Afghanistan. Here we have some allies in the Tea Party side. The American people are ready, I think, to support a substantial reduction in this self-imposed burden that America has to intervene militarily everywhere there's trouble anywhere in the world. Yes, we'll still be very strong. We'll still defend legitimate interests. But we do not have to have troops everywhere all the time, anytime there's trouble, especially since it doesn't do any good. I don't think this is uh, indifference. Look, we're sending troops back on Iraq. All the military might in the world isn't going to make Iraq into the kind of country we would like it to be. I do think that a presidential candidate who started talking about that would win. I certainly think that's true on drugs. Let's be very clear. With regard to legalizing marijuana, the public's ahead of the politicians. They're still worried about being soft on drugs. So I think you could move ahead. If you had a candidate who said, look, I want to substantially reduce America's military expenditure, so we're still very safe, but we're not intervening all over the world where people get mad at us for intervening anyway and it doesn't do much good. We're not going to lock up people because we don't like what they put in their mouth if it doesn't cause anybody else any harm. I th- and we're going to use that to expand Medicare, reduce the cost of higher education, expand the highways and trains, give you more local services. I think that would be very popular. This is Abby Dees, and we've been talking with former congressman from Massachusetts, Barney Frank, about his new memoir, Frank, A Life in Politics from the Great Society to Same-Sex Marriage. Well, I still disagree that I'm suffering from California-itis, but other than that, he was a real pleasure to talk to, and we've got much more of that interview coming over in the coming week, so stay on the lookout for that. And Chris, you have a little Barney Frank story. Yes, I do. I, I haven't seen Barney since I was in bed with him. No, it's <laughs> not what you think. Uh, it was an interview for IMRU, and we were at a fundraiser at this lovely, beautiful home, and there was no other quiet place to go, so Barney and I went into the bedroom, and got a wonderful interview from IMRU for IMRU. As you do. Well, that is the end of our show. Our thanks to tonight's director, Michelle Marie Gilkison, coordinating producer and social media czar, Steve Pride, and our Rainbow Minute producers, Jed Proctor and Brian Burns. Follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio, where the link to the latest show is posted by noon every Tuesday. And a reminder, if you don't already know, if you're Radios aren't already set for this, that the Supreme Court will begin to hear oral arguments tomorrow at 7 a.m. Pacific time on two fundamental questions in the same-sex marriage cases. The audio and unofficial transcript are expected to go up no later than 2 p.m. That's 11 a.m. Pacific on the court's website, which is supremecourt.gov. And we will close tonight with a new song from New York Out artist Dave Hall from his album Songs of Boyhead, and the song is called He... Good night. Good night. Good night. He collected little things, shiny, dainty things. He wore a little shawl and pretty slippers. He sang alone with a hairbrush microphone. In front of the mirror, he was Annie. Talked with his hands, delicate fluttering hands. He liked flowers and he liked glitter. He liked drawing beautiful gowns and clipping things from magazines. He scandalized the church, shocked the neighbors, mortified his parents. 
And he was fabulous.